Good morning. Like Brandon said, my name is Paul. Uh, it is a joy and an honor to be with you this morning, uh, an honor to have been entrusted with the preaching of God's word to us this morning out of Romans 5. Um, we are in week two of a series through Romans 5. Uh, last week, Tony preached on the grace on which we stand, on the hope that we have in Christ. And this week, uh, we're talking about faith. We're talking about faith. The word faith doesn't actually appear in, in our text this morning, but faith is really the concept that undergirds everything that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Romans, every, undergirds everything that he says, right, and really undergirds everything that we read in the Bible. Uh, and the central encouragement from, from Paul in our text this morning, I think, points uh, to the encouragement uh, that there is a concreteness to Christian faith. Uh, there is a surety to the Christian faith. And so let me ask this question as we begin. What does your faith rest on? What does your faith rest on? Let me talk about faith for just a moment. I'm convinced that we all live by faith, and there's a hundred ways that I could illustrate this, but I'll talk about driving a car. Um, When you get into a car, uh, when you got into a car to come here this morning, or if you walked, then think about the last time that you got into a car, Um, that was, in a way, an act of faith. And I don't say this to be cheesy or to be trite, right? Um, here's what I mean. Faith is, by definition, trust in something that will happen, right? It's belief in something uh, that you haven't seen happen yet, but that you think will, right? And in a sense, getting into a car is an act of faith. Will the brakes work, right? Will the tires stay glued to the road? Will the other drivers obey the law uh, in order to keep you safe? Will you do the same for them? The thing is, whenever you get into a car, though, you never know with 100% certainty whether you'll arrive safely at your destination, right? Your brakes could fail. You could have a blowout uh, and spin out. Uh, You could be the victim of another driver's mistake. And here is what I'm not trying to do. Um, I'm not trying to scare you away from driving home. Uh, In fact, I could talk about the dangers of walking, the faith that's taken, you know, but no, that's not what I'm trying to do, right? Here's what I'm trying to explain. Uh, We live our lives very much by faith, And living life in this way uh, informs our understanding of faith, right? And our understanding becomes that faith is in things that aren't certain. Faith becomes in things that might happen, right? Things that might be true, things that might come about. And as we live our lives, that's okay, right? It's, It's, in fact, I would think it's important to live our lives with that kind of faith, with most of what we do, because we can't possibly know everything that will come our way. But what our text this morning is talking about, though, is that there is such a thing as a rock-solid faith that will never fail. Hebrews 11, verse 1, gives us a definition of Christian faith. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is an assurance that accompanies Christian faith, a conviction of things not seen. Christian faith, Christian hope, is something that we can be sure of. And I think that in this text, we're going to see that that's because for Christians... Our faith rests on God's demonstrated love for us, which will never fail. And so my hope for this morning is that we would see that. We would see what God rests our faith on, that that Jesus and his work for us would become more beautiful than it was when we walked in. And as we look at how our text addresses uh, this topic, I think we're going to see three things. We're going to look at how Paul establishes the foundation of our faith, that uh, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us. We're going to look at how we struggle to trust in God for salvation. And then third, we're going to look at how we can be sure of our salvation because of God's love for us. And then we'll close. 
So let's jump in. Read with me. This is verse 6. It says this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Let me pause there uh, and, and give us just a little bit of context. When Paul says we here, while we were still weak, um, he's going to go on and refer to us. The, who he's talking to is Christians at the church in Rome. The Apostle Paul, like I said, wrote this letter, and he's writing it to Christians in a church that was really diverse. It was a socially diverse, financially diverse, ethnically diverse church. Uh, And he starts off uh, his letter to the Romans in chapter 1 by commending their faith. In Romans 1 verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he commends the, the, the church in Rome for their faith. And uh, he then goes on for the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 5, where we are this morning, uh, talking about why their faith is so important, right? That they're hopeless because of their sin, but it, that it is that their faith, it is their faith that gives them hope. It is their faith uh, which unites them with Christ. And because faith is so important, because it's so central, Paul wants to give them a real concrete foundation upon which to rest their faith. Um, both what it rests on and what, what their faith in God actually means. And so let's read again. Let's read how Paul begins, and we'll read this time, 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's three initial things, uh, I think, to point out here. First thing is that Christ died for us while we were still weak. He died for us while we were ungodly, while we were sinners. And what this means is that Christ did not die for good people. He didn't look at us trying to make our way to him and then die for us to get us the rest of the way there. He died for us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, as it goes on to say in verse 10. Let me explain this briefly. Um, Paul uses weakness here to describe the contrast between our weakness and God's strength, right? The difference between our way of doing things and God's way of doing things. Uh, When the Bible talks about sin, it talks about our deliberate disregard for God's commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, don't kill, don't envy, don't, uh, don't lie, don't steal, right? Each of us in this room has broken the Ten Commandments in some form or fashion, um, and, the, and that's a big deal, um, according to God. That means that we have all sinned. And, and the reason that's a big deal is because deeper than that, deeper than simply breaking commandments, what the Bible identifies as the underlying reason that we even want to break those commandments is the fact that we have other gods. We look to other things for, to give our lives meaning and purpose. And we do that because we don't want God to be our God. We want to do things our way. It's true for us today. It was true in ancient times. And it's because of the curse that occurred back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. When Paul says that we are weak, that we were sinners, he's referring to the fact that sin, which has existed since the fall in the Garden of Eden, has been the characteristic orientation of the human heart ever since. And as a result, we have a moral inability to fix ourselves. In verse 9, Paul writes that we have been justified by Christ's blood. In verse 10, he says that we've been reconciled by Christ's death. And justification is a legal term that essentially means that you've been declared innocent because justice has been served. Reconciliation is a term that means when you were enemies, you are now friends. And, and Paul says that we are 
we are justified by Christ's blood, reconciled by Christ's death because we couldn't do it ourselves. Christ had to do it because we couldn't do it. We do not have the moral capacity to incline ourselves to God, to turn towards God. We do have the power to choose what we want to do in any circumstance. But sin is so deep that we no longer have any desire for God to want to be with him, to want to live for him. And that's what Paul means when he says that we are weak, that we were sinners without the strength to fix our situation. The second thing to point out here is that Christ died at the right time. It says, uh, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, there's this series called The Lord of the Rings, uh, which you might be familiar with. J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of the books. Um, and the third and last book is called The Return of the King. Right, and the whole series is essentially about this battle between good and evil. And halfway through the third book, there's this climactic scene um, where the evil army of Mordor is attacking Minas Tirith, which is the capital of Gondor, the good people. Right, so the, the, this army is attacking, and they're about to break through the defenses of the city. Things are not going well. Uh, Faramir, the head of Gondor's army, has been struck down. The walls of the city are starting to crumble. The army of Mordor is about to move into the city. Uh, and just in time, though, the riders of Rohan, these thousands of men on horseback, ride in uh, to save the day. They jump in to fight the army of Mordor, and ultimately they rescue Minas Tirith from defeat. Right? And the riders of Rohan arrived at just the right time, in two senses of the word. First, they arrived at a time when Gondor was weak. Right? They arrived at a time when Gondor was about to lose the battle. Second, they arrived at just the right point in time. If they had arrived earlier, then if you're familiar with the story, then Gondor, in their pride, probably would have said, no, we don't need your help. Right? If they had arrived even probably just an hour later, then it would have been too late. The battle would have already been lost. They arrived at just the right time. Similarly, I say that to say this here, when Paul says that Christ died at just the right time, uh, there are two rich applications for what he means. Christ died at the right time with respect to our human condition, and he died at the right time with respect to history. We just talked about the first. He died with respect to our human condition, right? We were weak. It was when we were weak, in need of help, that Christ died. As one theologian put it, Christ did not wait for us to exercise our wills, to incline ourselves to him, to repent of our sins, or to get ourselves in such a state that it would be appropriate to provide an atonement for us. Christ didn't wait for that. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves up. He didn't wait till we asked him. He came while we were still weak, while we were still his enemies. Second, Christ died for us at the right time with respect to history. Christ came into the world in real time, in real history, um, there's these things called genealogies throughout the Bible, these lists of names uh, that identify who is in what family. In, in the Gospels, which is the first four books of the New Testament, there's genealogies that are there to describe the fact that Jesus was born into a real family. There's also other details in the Gospels that describe what's going on around, uh, like the Roman census that's going on in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. That is put there to talk about the real historical date on which Christ was born. So Christ was really born in history, and he was born on the exact date and in the exact place that the Father had decreed. Throughout history, throughout the ministering of God to his people in making, uh, making a nation for himself out of Israel and giving them the law and the prophets and ministering to them throughout their entire sojourning, everything leading up to Christ was ripening history for this moment, for just the right time. Galatians 4 says it, just the, in the fullness, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. 
And he died at the right time too. In the gospel accounts of Christ's death, there's all kinds of things going on behind the scenes politically. Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, Pilate, the governor uh, of the province of Rome, King Herod, these men gave their opinion, gave their advice as to the to what should happen in Christ's death. The soldiers had conspired, the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling elites had gotten involved. They paid Judas to betray Jesus, to lead them to Jesus so that everything could take place. God knew from the foundation of the world that this was the day on which Christ would die because he had ordained it. Everything came together exactly as God had planned so that Christ could die at just the right time on a cross with his blood poured out for us. Christ died at just the right time while we were sinners and at just the right point in history that everything had been leading up to. The third thing to point out here is that Christ died for a specific purpose. Whenever Paul speaks of Christ's death, he speaks of its purpose, and this is no exception. Verse 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 9 says, we have been justified by his blood. Verse 10, we were reconciled by Christ's death. His death was for the ungodly to justify them, to to declare them innocent, to reconcile them to God. And the reason I point that out is to explain this. The Bible doesn't teach that Christ died to make salvation possible. The Bible doesn't say that Christ died to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make it possible. He died for his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep, knowing that when he did, there was never a doubt in heaven that all for whom he died had their sins covered, and will spend eternity with him in heaven. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Right? Hebrews 12, verse 2, says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Right? There's no maybe in either of those verses. Right? I, um, to illustrate this, I, I grew up in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I just heard recently that there's this project um, that a couple of non- nonprofits came together called The Commons uh, to fundraise, and they bought this hotel called the Imperial Hotel, uh, and they flipped it. They, they turned it into a bunch of uh, single units, uh, low rent for homeless senior citizens, homeless veterans and homeless senior citizens. And they, they, um, they did this, they came together, and it was great. Um, they only charge whatever a person can afford. They, had counseling ser- they, they have counseling services, an on-site medical clinic. Utilities are included. They provide transportation. It's a great project. And what they did was when they completed it, they went out into the streets to go around and offer this to, uh, to the people um, who were in need. Right? They went around and they didn't want to force it on people. They just wanted to offer them something that had been made possible, offer them an opportunity for them. Right? And that's a beautiful story. I pray that we see something like that, a number of things like that in Houston. But that's not how the Bible describes what God did for us. Right? Christ didn't die on the cross so that he could come with us and say, here is something that's been made available to you. Take it or leave it. Right? If that were the case, then Christ could have died and never seen the fruit for which he died. Right? If the successfulness of Christ's death depended on us, then Christ certainly would have had no fruit from his death. No, Jesus died for us while we were still weak at just the right time to ensure the salvation of his people, to ensure the salvation of his sheep. And this is incredible. In fact, Paul uh, pauses on this. Um, Read with me in verse 7. It says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
Here's what Paul is talking about. Righteous probably refers to someone whose uprightness is, is kind of cold, calculated, mechanical, not very welcoming. Good, uh, a good person on the other hand, is someone whose goodness is, is warm and generous and inviting. Right? And so what Paul is describing is that one would be very unlikely to die for a righteous person by that definition. But even for a good person, uh, dying for them would be a dare. Right? It, would take, uh, it would be a long shot. Um, and then look at verse 8. So Paul says this, he says, and then he says, but God shows his love for us in that it was while we were still sinners, which means we were neither good nor righteous, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, that Christ died for us. It doesn't make sense, logically. But this is essential to the central truth of Christianity, right? the truth of what Christ did for us. This is the way that God loves us. Right? He doesn't love us because of any merit of our own. He loves us simply because he loves us. In 1 John 4, there's this popular verse, uh, 1 John 4, 19, that says, we love because he first loved us. Right? We love because God first loved us. Because God has loved us in this way, right? we get to love others before they earn our love, uh, and even if they don't receive our love in the way that we want them to. Right? We certainly love the good person, but we also love the righteous person and the sinner uh, before they turn around and give us anything in return. I once heard it said that it's easy to get disillusioned when you're caring for any needy portion of society, whether homeless, um, addicted, uh, whatever it is. I heard it's easy to get disillusioned uh, because when you're in the middle of it and, and you're in it because you want to help people, then you'll realize as you go into it, then you're, you're oftentimes helping people who don't want help. And so it becomes difficult, almost impossible, uh, to help them. Right? But when you're not in it because you want to help people as your first priority, but because you love people, then your perspective changes. Um, patience characterizes your interactions rather than an agenda. There's this old adage that says, God helps people who help themselves. Right? God helps people who help themselves. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think that's in the Bible because I don't want you to be embarrassed. I want you to know that that is not in the Bible. In fact, uh, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Right? God didn't die for us because we wanted to help ourselves. He died precisely because we didn't want his help, because we couldn't see our need. That is when Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's beautiful. God gave himself for us, even to the horrible, sin-bearing death that he died on a cross for us when we didn't deserve it, right? for his undeserving enemies. And let's look at the problem here, though. You'd think that with that good news, with that good message, that we would be set, right? How could we possibly doubt our salvation if this is what it means, right? The reality, though, is that we do. We, we struggle to trust in Christ for salvation and we do this in a variety of ways. To start with, in each of our hearts, um, in each of our hearts, even in the hearts of Christians, there's this little buzz in the back of our mind that says, I really wasn't that bad. Right? There are those who hear about Jesus and say things like, yeah, people make mistakes, but we're all trying to do our best. Right? So what we need to do is get that, move on. Um, and if you, need, uh, if you need Jesus in order to deal with that in your life, then that's fine for you, but I don't need Jesus. You might say, I'm not that bad. If there is a God and he's loving, then of course he's going to love me because I'm a pretty good person. 
Right? If that's you, um, then you might look at Christians with a little bit of pity, right? wondering why these people seem to enjoy beating themselves up for things when they're really not that bad. But um, you know, if it helps them live their lives, then that's fine for them. Right? Or, or if you're a Christian, uh, you might find yourself saying things like, yeah, I'm thankful for Jesus, but I have to play my part. Right? Um, I have to continue believing or else I'll lose my salvation. God made an offer to me, and so I need to receive this and carry it through, or else I'll fail. And if that's you, then when it, whether or not you would say it out loud, you think either uh, probably that, that Christ died for that good little piece of you, so that the, the real good you could really shine, or you believe that you have the responsibility to finish what Christ started in you. And so the doubts and struggles that you face are paralyzing because you, you think this should be easy, right? But it's not. I should be better at this, but I'm not. Right? Whatever this is, whether this is believing in God or whether this is dealing with some cir- circumstance or situation, you hear great things about Jesus and life in Christ, but in the back of your mind you say, but I see my life right now. I hear my thoughts right now. And so you start to doubt whether God loves you or whether you were even saved in the, per- in the first place. See, if those things are true, then why, uh, why am I in pain? Right? Why, why am I not happy? Why is it so hard to find joy? Right? Why do I continue to struggle with sin? I think really that for each of those comments, right, to, to the one who says, I don't need Jesus, and to the one who says, but I need to play my part, right? my answer to that, I'd answer with this question. What is it that you think that Christ died to save you from? Right? What is it that Christ died to save you from? Because I think that those comments are in many ways a result of a misunderstanding of what we've been saved from. Often, we give the answer as simply sin, right? Christ died to save us from sin. And while, yes, it's not incorrect to say that God saves us from sin, the problem with that is that in and of itself, that's not the whole story. And because of that, we run into some problems. For example, If Christ died to save us from sin, then it would make sense that if you don't really have a problem with sin, if you don't think that sin's a big deal, uh, then you wouldn't really have any urgency to trust in Christ for salvation, right? Or maybe this, um, if Christ died to save us from sin, then it would make make sense that any ongoing struggle with sin that you have would be alarming, right? And so you start to doubt, maybe I'm not saved in the first place, right? So let's talk about salvation for just a moment. Uh, According to a theologian named R.C. Sproul, Uh, The most basic understanding of salvation, uh, the most basic concept of salvation uh, is that salvation is to be saved, to be rescued uh, from some calamity, from some disaster, right? So if you're restored from sickness, then you're saved from the effects of that illness, right? If you win victory, then you're saved from the shame of defeat. That's how the Greek word for salvation is used throughout the Bible, right? That anytime someone uh, is rescued from some great catastrophe, he or she experiences salvation, And here in our text, we're pointed to the great doctrine of salvation in the ultimate sense, in which we are saved from the worst of all possible catastrophes, God's own wrath. Read with me. Verse 9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Many people don't believe in this anymore, even many Christians. Many people believe in a God who has no wrath. But if there's no wrath coming, then there is no need for Jesus. As R.C. Sproul goes on to explain, 
as long as people are unconcerned about the wrath of God, they feel no need to come to Jesus. If God is real, though, then so is his wrath, and the biblical view of salvation is rescue from wrath. And so what is it that Christ died to save us from? Christ died to save us from God's wrath. Right? God, in a sense, God saves us from God. Right? And how did he do it? How did Christ do it? Christ did it by coming to bear the wrath of God due for us in himself. Right? Jesus didn't come as a human so that he could plead with his father to forget how angry he was and not punish us. Right? Jesus didn't see the firing squad lined up ready to execute us and then step in the way knowing that if he was in the way that uh, the, the execution would be canceled. No, Jesus stepped in front of the firing squad and said, me, not them. He came at exactly the right time in accordance with God's sovereign plan so that he could bear the wrath of God for us. And this is great news. This is great news. God himself, because of his justice, because sin requires just payment in wrath, right? in order to save his people, God had to make a way through his wrath. And his way of doing that was out of his love for us, dying for us, dying for us, dying for you on a cross so that his blood poured out could save you. We used to sing this song um, at Sojourn called In My Place. It said, in my place, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place so that you would not have to face the wrath of God yourself. Christ died to save us from God and he did so by bearing God's wrath for us. Right? And so in this text, we're confronted with a familiar description uh, that, that the Bible gives to the Christian life. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Already, Christ has died to justify and reconcile us. Right? Already, Christ has borne the wrath of God that is due for us, but not yet has God's wrath been poured out on the world for the sake of sin. And so, in a sense, we are looking forward to the salvation that we have yet to receive. Right? It's confusing because, uh, because if we are in Christ, right, if we are in Christ, then Christ died for the wrath that is due for us, and that wrath that is due for us hasn't come yet, even though Christ already died for it. It's con- it sounds confusing because it is, but um, it's a beautiful tension that I think accounts for many of the things that we see in our daily lives. For one, it explains present sin. We are still in the presence of sin, which means that sin is still around us. Sin is still in us. We still experience the countless effects of sin because sin hasn't finally been done away with. This is a reality that often gets overlooked or often gets avoided when all we say is, Jesus saved me from sin. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, The reason the Apostle Paul doesn't just stop at verse 8 here The reason he doesn't just stop at verse 8, leaving out verses 9 through 11, is because he wants us to have the full story. He wants us to understand fully the grace that's offered to us in Jesus. If we were to just go around saying, Christ died for your sins, Christ died for your sins, and that becomes the extent of what we teach others and the extent of what we teach ourselves, then what we're teaching is not actually the extent of what Christ did. Because, let me put it this way, if you're new to riding in a car and someone tells you to wear your seatbelt and you ask them, why? And they say, because it's safe. Um, then that's great. You'll probably do it right away. You say, okay, I want to be safe. But let's say you ride in a car for years, 
right? And you haven't seen an accident, you've never been in an accident, then you start asking why again, right? And people look at you and you say, why, why should I wear my seatbelt? People say, well, because it's safe, because it's safe, because it's safe, right? If you just keep hearing that and you've never seen the potential danger of what might happen if you get into an accident while not wearing your seatbelt, then you might stop being as legalistic about wearing your seatbelt, right? You might be a little bit more lax about it. See, good driver's education tells the full picture. When I was going through driver's education, I think it was 15 or 16, in Atlanta, they showed us videos of people ejected through the windshield of cars. It was graphic. It was awful to watch, but they showed it to us, and it was important because they wanted us to know seatbelts are important. There's real danger. It was the full story, and Paul here wants us to see the whole picture because if you just say Christ died for your sins, Christ died for your sins, but never tell the full picture of God's coming wrath, then people will misunderstand what salvation is in the first place. Right? Trusting in God for salvation either becomes unimportant because it's just for the goody two-shoes, right? or it becomes impossible as we are stifled by our unmet expectations of being perfect, of being sin-free, of being struggle-free. So after saying in verse 8 that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Paul goes on to explain what we will be saved from in verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, we look at the past with confidence, we look at the present with honesty, and we look at the future with hope. And let's continue. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. It says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So Paul makes two parallel statements here in verses 9 and 10. Notice the words, much more. Right, the structure of both of these ver- uh, verses is virtually identical. Right? Since one thing has happened, much more will this other thing take place. Right? Christ's, uh, Paul roots what will happen in what has already happened, and here's the logic. Right? If God has already done the difficult thing, right, can we not trust him much more to do the comparatively simple thing of completing the task? Right? If God reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies, much more will he finish our salvation now that we are his reconciled friends. Right? These are the grounds upon which we have faith that we shall be saved. Because God has proved faithful, he will continue to, pro- be, to prove faithful. And why? Let's not miss why God has done this. Read verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wants us to know that he's done all of this because he loves us. Furthermore, he wants our faith to rest on his demonstrated love for us. God gave himself for us to demonstrate for us, to show us, to prove to us that he loves us. And this is key to understanding God's relationship with humanity. And it isn't new. Let me illustrate this with another story from the Bible. Uh, You might have heard of the story when Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus tells of the exodus, the exit of Israel from under the hand of the Egyptians. And Exodus chapter 12 tells the story of the Passover. Right, you, might have, you might have heard how it happened, but here's what happened. God's people, God's people, uh, chosen people, Israel, the Israelites, the Jews, they were in slavery in Egypt, right, and they cried out to God, saying, God, rescue us. And so what God did is he sent 10 plagues, one after another, with increasing severity, to get Pharaoh's attention, 
um, so that Pharaoh would let God's people go. And the 10th plague was this plague called the plague of the firstborn, right, where God said, I'm going to pass through the land and I will strike, I will kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt from the, the house of the Pharaoh to the house of the servants, even to the livestock of the field. I will kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt as I pour out my wrath on Egypt, right? But he says to his people, this plague will not fall on you. Here's what I want you to do. What I want you to do is, is take a lamb without blemish and sacrifice it. And take the blood of this sacrificed lamb and put it on your doorposts. So that when I pass through, when I send the destroyer to pass through and strike down the firstborn in, in the land of Egypt, I will see your houses and I will protect you from this wrath. Right? And it worked. Um, God gave his people this, this way of identifying themselves with him. He said, put the blood on the doorposts and wait. And he came. And it worked. Pharaoh and all of the land of Egypt, there was this great cry, uh, and they sent the Israelites out. God had saved his people from Egypt, and he had saved his people from the wrath by which he made it happen. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, then, God constantly points his people back to this event. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I love you. You know this because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right? He had given them this meal, the, the, the Passover meal. He said, every year, celebrate this. Sacrifice a Passover lamb to point you back to this event when I delivered you. I love you. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, when Jesus celebrated his last supper with the disciples before being betrayed and handed over to be crucified, when he celebrated the last supper, it was, this was a meal which itself came at just the right time. It's no coincidence that this meal happened during the Passover feast, which was this annual feast celebrating what God had done in Egypt. So when Jesus had this last Passover meal with his disciples, he repurposed the feast, giving them bread and wine instead of a Passover lamb, saying, this is my body and my blood, which is broken and poured out for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. He gave them this new meal to celebrate, knowing that he was about to sacrifice himself as the true Passover lamb, for the salvation of his people. Right? As, as Moses had instructed God's people to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts and wait for their salvation, so too Jesus instructs his disciples and all who would follow him to believe in him, trusting in his blood poured out, and wait. Wait for God's judgment, but not wait wondering if we are going to hit it, Right? Wait for God's judgment with hope, knowing that when we are covered by the blood of Christ, marked by the blood of Christ, we will be preserved through this day of wrath. But there's one crucial difference between these stories. When the Israelites walked out from Egypt with their freedom, they walked into the wilderness. Right? For us, after this future day of wrath, we will indeed walk in freedom, except this time there will be no wilderness. In fact, there will be no more sin. There will be no more wickedness, no more evil, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sadness. None of the effects of sin will be left on that day. On that day, we will instead proceed into the new heavens and new earth to enjoy goodness and rightness and union with God forever with him. For the Christian, therefore, the best is yet to come. And so what do we do now? Read verse 11 with me. We'll end today the way that Paul ends this passage. Let's read verse 11. It says this, More than that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. What do we do now? We rejoice. We rejoice in God himself. And there's an irony here that I want to point out um, that, that parallels this verse with Paul's condemnation just a few chapters earlier. In the, uh, Paul condemned the Jews by saying in Romans 2.17, you boast in God. Paul had said, you boast in God, and that was a condemnation for the Jews. And here, Romans 5.11 reads, we rejoice in God. Right? The difference in the English translation, boast and rejoice, reflects the right reflex of the translators. Right? One is condemned and one is celebrated. But in the Greek, both phrases read literally the same. You boast in God, Jews. We boast in God, Christians. One is good and one is not That's because the Jew and the Christian see things differently. To boast in God as the Jews do is what Paul condemns, but to boast in God as Christians do is what Paul invites. And he knows this because Paul was a Jew, well-versed in the law. Why was their boasting wrong? Because they believed that by their obedience that they brought God into their debt, that God was there to lift them up, that God was essentially subordinate to them. When the Jews bragged about God, their boasting in him was as if he were their exclusive property, as if they had a monopoly interest in God, as if he belonged to them, whereas Christian boasting is exactly the opposite. Let me read this. Christian exaltation in God, Christian boasting in God, begins with the shame-faced recognition that we have no claim on him at all. It continues with the wondering worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. And it ends with the humble confidence that he will complete the work that he has begun. To rejoice in God, therefore, is to rejoice not in our privileges, but in his mercies. Not in our possession of him, but in his possession of us. So to tie together this whole opening section of Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, um, Paul closes with this verse. uh, In verse 11, he says, after making it clear that we have no reason to boast in God by our own merit, he says, nevertheless, we rejoice. We rejoice in God himself. We boast in God himself. We rejoice in what Christ has done for us. We rejoice in the love that the Father has for us, this love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, as it said in verse 5. We rejoice because of what Christ has done. The major mark of justified believers is joy. Right? We get to be the most positive people in the world. But here's the reality. For some of us, joy is hard to come by. You might not be rejoicing in much of anything right now, maybe nothing at all. You hear me talking about joy, you've heard other people talking about joy, and you think, well, you know, that'd be nice. It would be nice to, to, to rejoice in that, to rejoice like you rejoice. See, joy is a word that if we say it enough, becomes meaningless. Jesus himself acknowledges that there is suffering and that there is hurt for the Christian. When Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus isn't saying, come on, I've saved you from every hardship, so now after I die, gather together, sing kumbaya with a smile plastered on your face until I come back. That's not what Christ is saying here. What Christ is saying is is acknowledge your weakness and deny yourself so that my strength could be made perfect in you. 
And as my strength is growing in you, know that the process by which you will grow is going to look a whole lot like taking up your cross like I did. Jesus knew his disciples were going to suffer. He knew they were going to struggle. And Paul, here in Romans 5, back in verses 3 and 4, acknowledges, too, that there is suffering, that there is hurt. Right? And we know from the rest of Paul's writings that Paul's referring both to suffering from without, suffering from the outside, and also suffering due to internal struggles with sin. Right? Paul's not saying ignore things that are hard. He's not saying if you're happy, or he's not saying if you're not happy, then you must not be saved. Right? No, what Paul is saying is that all of these things, all of these struggles that we go through, will one day in the future be done away with. And that until then, we get to rejoice in them knowing that they are drawing us closer to Christ. They are further revealing what Christ did for us to us. And so we rejoice. But listen, you're allowed to admit when you're suffering. Right? You're allowed to admit when things aren't going well for you. In fact, more than just being allowed, you're invited to share everything that's going on with you, good or bad, so that, as Roman, uh, Romans 12, just a few chapters later, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? There's a season for everything, right? and there will be times that we will weep together. But through it all, in all of this, we get to live life experiencing victory and struggle, walking through seasons of certainty and doubt, all the while rejoicing only and fully in the fact that we belong to God because of what Christ has done. So what does your faith rest on? The clear call to all of us in this text is this. Rest your faith on the demonstrated love of God for you. Christ died for you so that his blood poured out could mark you as one who will be preserved in the face of God's coming wrath. And so you wait and wait with hope because as it says in Hebrews 9 verse 28, Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ offers a rock-solid faith that will hold up no matter what else fails. And Sojourn, when we get into this car, we know with absolute certainty that we will arrive safely at our destination. The brakes will not fail. The tires will stay glued to the road. And you know that because your faith is in a God who demonstrated his love for you by giving his life for you so that you could safely arrive at home. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word, and thank you for yourself. And I pray uh, that, that the word that you shared with us this morning uh, would reveal you to us, um, and that any distraction that might have come our way this morning and that you would remove it, and that truth would sink in, Lord. That we would see you for who you are. Hear the gospel truth, the message, the good news of salvation, uh, exactly as you would have us understand it, so that we might place our faith in something real. And Father, I pray for each of us in this room, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that, that might cause us to struggle in our faith, Lord, I pray that you would keep us focused on the fact that that our faith rests not in our ability to believe. Our faith rests not in the fact that we are holding up our end of the bargain. Our faith rests firmly on the fact that you died for us to preserve us through the coming of God's wrath. 
so that we could have hope and joy in you and in you alone and in you forever. We pray that you would help us to know these things, help us to trust these things, help us to believe by your grace. Amen.